man, I love that song. <laughs> it is so good. It's so chilling, right? I know. And such a great rendition of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so that is not our normal intro song. <laughs> it's not It's not nearly as cool as that. It would be kind of weird if that was our normal intro that, song. That actually would be. It'd be a very depressing podcast. <laughs> yeah, right. Very sad podcast. <laughs> but that is the song of Persephone mm-hmm. uh, from the book that we were talking about, Red Rising. That 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 was song was actually, uh, the rendition was by Lauren Conklin, mm-hmm. who we, we really love the rendition and we're really grateful that she allowed us to use it Absolutely. to open and kind of Appreciate play throughout the, uh, the episode because it's a beautiful, beautiful done. So you can yep. find all of her information in our show notes we'll link to her youtube page she does yep. a lot of violin covers she's got this lord of the rings one that's really awesome so i love that you, one. you gotta yeah you gotta go check her out yeah um, and if that like opening song doesn't get you excited for the topic nothing's gonna do it no, nothing's gonna do it um but anyways uh i'm nelson oh hey hey nelson i'm dalton <laughs> hey how you doing dalton? <laughs> I'm getting really good yeah i'm really excited good. we have a lot in store this episode we do this is a big one yeah it really <laughs> is so we got us we got two special guest we do two special guests two special guests we get to talk about one of our favorite books of all time red uh-huh. rising yep and we get a little preview with our special guest of a new board game that's coming yeah, out so it's kind of a combined episode i know we got we got all of our pillars we got the the book red rising the board game we red do. rising and then we are also drinking which are our other two pillars you want to hop into that yeah absolutely okay so who's starting out tonight uh, I'll I'll start you out. Okay, so start me out. so I I brought you a beer. I brought you. you did I appreciate uh, it? <laughs> of course, yeah. I brought you a bourbon barrel. Or the the name the name is very descriptive. I brought you bourbon <laughs> barrel aged albino white stout from Horny Goat Brewing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it starts. It gets less descriptive as you go on. <laughs> yeah, but more interesting. Yeah, but more interesting. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, so we've had one other Horny Goat beer on this episode right. in our welcome to episode which was almost about a year ago is what it you was. were saying yeah, so that's yeah. kind of it fun. released on april 9th of 2020 <laughs> and we're releasing this one on april 8th which that, 2021, that's awesome. which is pretty cool yeah so the the albino white stout um from horny goat horny goat is a plainfield brewery which yep. is a local brewery here it looks like a pale ale right <laughs> yeah it really does so the white stout is kind of interesting the srm is about a 13 which is also described as like i don't know i'd say it's like a a copper yeah. Like you could like mask elementic powers around you if, while you're drinking it or something. <laughs> Wrong book episode, but oh, yes. Oh, shoot, shoot, yeah. Oh, that's why I have my notes open. <laughs> but yeah, so the white stout uh, is... It definitely is a surprising color for a stout. Like yes. I poured it and was like, that's not right. That's not right. They bottled this wrong. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So white stouts get their flavor from chocolate and coffee more mm-hmm. so than like the roasted malt that you would normally see in a stout. Okay. And so I think what you were saying is that you taste a lot of coffee in this one. Yeah, it's a lot. It's very <laughs> coffee poor. And there is like a chocolate undertone, but okay. it, like I, like when you smell it, you're like, that smells like a cup of black coffee. Yeah, <laughs> that's a cup of black coffee. Yeah. But but typically that roasted malt is what gives it its dark flavor. Gotcha. And so when you remove that, you actually do get a beer that looks like an IPA or mm-hmm. a pale ale or something like that. It's kind of interesting. It smells and it should kind of taste more smooth or like a stout Mm -hmm. so you may still get some of that but it's not what you're expecting whenever you're drinking it so yeah i can see what you mean where it's when it's when you say it's lacking the malt like it's lacking a lot of the sweetness i think it tastes okay more like it's interesting it tastes more like black coffee than black stouts do (laughs) yeah (laughs) which is a little disorienting yeah but yeah 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 so i i picked it up there's another bourbon aged uh Mm -hmm. beer which i actually didn't know (laughs) so (laughs) i just saw a vinyl white so i was like oh that sounds kind of cool interesting you've been spoiling me with these yeah you've been spoiling me with these bourbon aged (laughs) (laughs) beers yeah i really have but so this one was aged in a bourbon barrel for about six months so it's not quite a straight uh bourbon aged 
beer. Yeah. If that's a term, like mm-hmm. I think you're supposed to get like two years, right? Is what you said. <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> straight is two years. Yeah, for a bourbon. Yeah. But that one spent uh, about six months in a uh, in in a bourbon barrel. So cool. awesome. So that's what it is. The albino white stout doesn't look like one, but it may taste like one. What are your thoughts? <laughs> yeah. Like I, like I said, the the coffee and like a chocolate undertone are very forward. I think I was a little. Honestly, I was a little surprised to hear that it was like bourbon barrel aged, which is maybe a little bit disappointing. You know, like I was like, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I tasted don't have it. it. Yeah, I'm not really picking it up. Like maybe in the aftertaste, I kind of get it. I wonder like what, because this, I haven't had really, I maybe have had one white stout before, and but it's definitely not something I've drank a lot of. So I kind of wonder what it, what it would have tasted like without the bourbon barrel. Oh, interesting. Aging. I think they have one. They actually okay. have one. So Horny Goat, I, I was looking up this and there's not a lot of information out about this one. Okay. So kind of a specialty. <laughs> yeah um but I, I was looking it up they have a horny goat white stout okay which is all right they have a horny goat albino white stout but not bourbon barrel aged and that oh. one's significantly more popular gotcha so your wish just came true it, you it can did, yeah it. i can try it i can try it and compare um so i i do like it i, I like the strong coffee flavor i like that it's a little it's a little quirky as a beer i might oh interesting you know, i okay. might describe it like it's in that in that like i think i'm Describing it that way because it's just not what you expect. Like you pour yeah. something, you're like, "Is this a stout?" Like you said, it looks like a pale ale, but it does not taste like a pale <laughs> ale, um, and it tastes different than a different than a stout. So um, it's a very different experience yeah. than standard beers in that <laughs> okay. sense. I think for me, um, I'm I'm going back and forth between a two and a three. I think I would probably land it at a two cheers, okay. and I would probably want to try the regular white stout. You know, if I saw it, just to, <laughs> mostly again, kind of for the comparison. Yeah, um, it's a two cheers because it's not. You can't taste that bourbon barrel in it. Right. It would be a three cheers if it wasn't described as a bourbon barrel aged. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, and, and partly because like I don't I don't know the price point, but typically bourbon barrel beers are, are, are more expensive. And I feel like if it's going to like charge that, that I want kind of like a more... Oh, uh, I got you. You know yeah. what I mean? Like a, a more delicate or more intricate, I guess is a better word to experience. Not just with overpowering. With right. Coffee. Not just overpowering coffee. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So I'm still, yeah, I'm still very much enjoying it. But I think also, like, if I was going to, if I was going to look for a beer like this, I might just try bourbon barrel aged regular <laughs> yeah. stouts, yeah, you yeah. know, instead of like this specific white one. Because I think it's, like you said, it's kind of maybe overpowering. It's a, it's a pint. So you got a lot of it. So. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The can doesn't actually list like the alcohol volume. So, you know, it's a bit of a mystery. <laughs> How drunk am I going to get? <laughs> <laughs> it's like one of those mystery. Yeah. One of those mystery boxes that you buy at Gen Con or something. It's like three games. Right. <laughs> Dalton's going to be either tipsy or hammered. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I'm excited to see where you end up. Yeah, right. <laughs> what uh, What am I drinking? Yeah, you were drinking um, Russell's Reserve. So we've, I realized actually after I bought this, I was like, we've been drinking, we had a lot of bourbons, like in, which I know like it's one It of is the, our title. Yeah, it is in the <laughs> title. Like, and so well, I'm supposed to be exploring the realms of it. Like we're definitely continuing that. Um, but I, I do try to like mix up your experience and yeah. throw in some rise and everything. I so appreciate that. We've been on a bourbon kick. And so this will hopefully next time I'll find something that's <laughs> on a bourbon. Um, but I've been wanting to try Russell's Reserve. And so this is Russell's Reserve 10 year which is, um, it's a small batch, so we, we've had a lot of conversation mm-hmm. around yep. small. So you can kind of compare this um, probably to like Elijah Craig in okay. like price point and taste. I think it's a nice kind of like variety pick if you're like, if you've had a lot of Four Roses recently, a lot of Elijah Craig, something like that. This is Wild Turkey's version that kind of like competes at that price point. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so Russell's is uh, the name of like two. It's a, I think it's a father and son, which is why it's like like two Russell's. A father and son from like the Wild Turkey distillery family. Um, and so they put this together from 10-year barrels from the Wild Turkey kind of 
of like stock of barrels. Oh, okay. And that's, so that's what makes it a small batch. They kind of try and mix to get like this consistent flavor. For this specific one that we're drinking, I got kind of like in the nose, like some, I think actually, first of all, overall, it's a very like quintessential like bourbon-y bourbon. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, it's a know, bourbon. It's a bourbon. Like you taste it and it's not messing around with being, I think it's like a 75% corn mash. Okay. With like, I think the remainder something like barley and uh, rye. And so it's just giving it a little bit of um, flavor and complexity, but mostly what's coming across is like, you know, caramel, oak, like flavors that you totally expect from a bourbon. Yeah, that's interesting. I I agree. It is a bourbon's bourbon. Like that, mm-hmm, I mean, like mm-hmm. if you've ever had a bourbon, boil it down to its base form and this is what you're kind of tasting. Yeah. I think that when, I didn't realize until you just compared it to like the Elijah Craig. Mm-hmm. And so that that's an interesting comparison that I want to make because I think that Elijah Craig is a little bit more complex than this is. Okay. This one feels a little jarring, um, especially mm-hmm. for like the, it's not a super high APV and right. it's uh, around the same price point. I'm kind of always go back to comparing it to a Templeton if it's a rye or, uh-huh. um, or, or Elijah Craig, if it's uh, a small batch or something like that. Yeah. Like I, I did water this one down and uh-huh. I, I've never watered down Elijah Craig. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. It, the alcohol flavor seems to be significantly more there. Okay. Which I, I guess I also kind of think that of wild Turkey. Um, I think so too. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, that's just kind of what you, get when you don't really care <laughs> um I, I don't know if that's actually true it's just my my history mm-hmm. so maybe maybe that's what's kind of contributing to that flavor mm-hmm. but i i definitely don't think that i would really pick this over an elijah craig especially yeah. if it's the same price point so right i in that sense it's probably a two cheers like yeah i mean it's not going to be something that i completely avoid um at all costs like mm-hmm. i'm probably mm-hmm. going to drink this and then one more tonight right i'm not going to yeah. say no yeah uh, i think that's totally fair it has a very strong flavor profile like it comes through almost like thick i think in the in the flavor profile um which is why i, th- I think i kind of recommended to you to water it back a little bit yeah and, I, and i'm I'm, t- I'm like kind of on par with you like i it's a name that i see all the time i was like i kind of want to give this one a try it's in the mid-tier like small batch like it's going to compete with elijah craig i think i'm with you that like i just it's it's like it's the official bourbon of the fantasy <laughs> like we just really <laughs> like Evan hill elijah craig I, I so i think elijah craig would win over it but i think that it's a nice kind of like variety pick if i've had a lot I, I would agree with that you know it's like oh, let's branch that. out a little bit and try something that's just slightly different yeah absolutely cool okay so you want to hop into our special minds section oh, oh i do so oh i do <laughs> this is a treat this yeah we, this was really exciting we we have already recorded this so we're going to drop it in but we did yeah. get to talk to jamie stegmeyer and alex schmidt who mm-hmm. are the co-designers of the red rising board game that is coming out soon yep from if you're Stonemaier in games from stonemeyer games good 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 point um <laughs> <laughs> uh, which is coming out soon if you're in the united states if you're mm-hmm. in europe uh I don't want to talk to you because you've been playing this. Don't for a say weeks. it. We have no, no listener. <laughs> oh, because they already have had the chance to play it. Yeah, they, they, they've, they've been playing it for a few weeks and that's they keep posting right. on it about it on Instagram, and I get jealous. That's so <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, Nelson's yeah. jealous of you, uh, you listeners. <laughs> but we we are, we were really excited to have them on to discuss both the board game and the and a little bit of the book so if you have not read the book and you're here to listen about the board game we do make a distinct note Uh in in our conversation where we explicitly say if you have not read the book we recommend you drop off now yeah so that's towards the end so enjoy 
Jamie Stegmeier and Alex Schmidt. Yeah. You know, we know this is a book episode. If you're listening to this for just the strict Red Rising content, we we really do recommend that you go ahead and listen through this portion because we are spending a significant portion of it talking about the probably roughly half or so talking yeah. about the book. Um, and it's it's one of it's one of Jamie's favorites. It's one of Alex's favorites, and they have some really good things to say about it. Um, so we're really excited for this to kind of like kick off this discussion uh, with the, with the two of them. Absolutely. Awesome. So we're we're now here with Alex and Jamie from Stonemeyer Games. How are you doing, guys? Yeah, I'm doing great. Yeah, great to be here. Good to be so, here. So uh, Jamie is the president of Stonemeyer, and Alex is uh, an employee of Stonemeyer. Is that correct? Correct. The director of sales. Okay, awesome. So the director of sales. Awesome title. And so you guys just put out an awesome game, which is kind of why we asked you to come on the podcast all about Red Rising. You want to give like a quick brief overview and then we can talk about Stonemeyer a little bit? Yeah, sure. So sure. Um, so Red Rising, uh, the game, is uh, obviously based off of the book. Uh, it is a one to six player um, card and board game uh, that involves uh, it's a, a hand uh, hand building game. So, so you have a hand of cards and you are trying to develop the best hand of cards you can while playing cards on the board and picking them up and you're manipulating different things on the board as you're doing so. Yeah, so I mean, the, the basic thing that you're doing in the game, like Alex said, you start out with a random hand of cards and over the course of the game, you're, you are often on your turn getting rid of a card and then adding one to your hand, uh, all building towards what you hope will be a great hand at the end of the game. And we designed this to appeal ideally to gamers who like deep uh, decisions in games, but also to people who are like readers who follow your, your podcast, um, who uh, have read books but haven't played a lot of modern games, that the game will still be welcoming to them because what you're doing on your, on your turn is so, uh, so simple. Yeah, I, I have not yet played the game. I'm, I'm eagerly awaiting it to arrive at my doorstep. Um, so this episode will release a, on April 6th. And so we're hoping to get it at some point this month. But I have watched a couple of streams. So like I know the Charity Board Gamer has done a couple of streams with Red Rising. Um, and I, it looks awesome. It's it just the art is phenomenal. It's so fun always when you have a game that uh, it, like means so much to you thematically to like see all of your favorite characters implemented, right? So it definitely has that um, that draw, like you said, to the to the listener base who's like, oh, there's Darrow and there's you know Severo and there's all these characters that I love. And we worked with artists uh, in particular, uh, Justin and Miles are artists who are who were big fans of the books before they became artists for the game. And so it was very easy to provide art direction for them because I could just say, draw Darrow for me, and they they have they already had a picture in their head of what Darrow. Well, looked like and they could put that on paper so it was exciting to me every time i got a new illustration to see <laughs> what one of these characters looked yeah it like. just sounds like a lot of passionate people were working on this project so I, i'm excited i'm excited to get it into my yeah. hands but since this is a book episode um a lot of our listeners may not know the the name stonemeyer games whereas it's a huge name in the board game industry so can you give us a brief history of what stonemeyer games is and how it came to be started Sure, I, I can do that. Alex is probably going to answer a lot of these questions about Red Rising, <laughs> yes. but I, I started the company, so I'll, I'll answer this one. Um, I co-founded Stonemaier Games back in 2011, 2012, with a Kickstarter project for a game called Viticulture. And since then, over the years, we, we went from being a very small Kickstarter-driven company to a slightly bigger uh, company that doesn't use Kickstarter anymore. We just uh, create a few games, a few expansions for games every year, and we release them both directly through our website and to hobby game retailers around the world um, in a variety of different languages. And uh, yeah, I, that's, our, that's our main focus. I, I am both a designer and a developer and a publisher for our games. 
and uh, yeah, we 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 target we try to focus on games that uh, that play from about forty five minutes to ninety minutes, and that ideally bring bring joy to people and capture their imaginations. Yeah, I think you do a great job of that. So you said that you co-founded it oh, nice. in twenty eleven. That's correct. Yeah, 2011 is when I started working on the game that I put on okay. Kickstarter in 2012. And that's when I uh, started collaborating with my my co-founder, Alan okay. Stone. And so I guess this is a question both for you, Jamie, and you, Alex. How long have you been designing games? For So for me, um, I've done things like gr- growing up, there were, there were always elements of designing games and things like that. But uh, seriously, designing games, I started in uh, 2016, um, though Red Rising is the first game that I've designed that's actually being published. And I think I met Alex around that time because we run an event called the Stolmeyer Games mm-hmm. Design Day, uh, where we host designers from around the country who come to this event in St. Louis and showcase their their prototypes and playtest their prototypes. And I don't know if it was exactly in 2016, but it was around then that Alex showed up at Design Day, and and uh, I had a great time meeting him and his his wife, and they they joined my gaming group, and eventually Alex joined the company. And I've been designing, Alex, you can add to that in a second, but I've been designing games my entire life, both as a, as a kid and then um, as an adult, starting with that game in 2011, Viticulture. Alex, did I get the timeline uh, right? Yeah, it is. It was uh, the design day, I think it was September of 2016. Uh, and that was okay. that was the first time we yeah. met. So I'll keep that in mind when I'm you know, doing my next like job search, that the best way to get in is to join your boss's <laughs> game night. I mean, I, I, I highly recommend it. Like, it's networking, right? Like it's it's not it's networking with the intention of adding value to the other person, not to get a job necessarily. But that's that's opportunities come out of that. So over this like long long history, I think of it as as long. I think Dalton and I have thrown back and forth some ideas, but we've never kind of really gone into it really uh, to actually design a game. But you know, we have our ideas, and then you know, it's a end of the night discussion, and then that's kind of where it starts. But so what what kind of brings you pride? Or, or what's been your favorite moment in your your game design journey? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, I mean, my, my favorite moment is definitely seeing people playing Red Rising, especially like I haven't seen people play the finished game of Red Rising in person yet. But <laughs> even seeing it online, um, seeing uh, people playing it, seeing people excited about the game, um, the, the number of uh, comments, whether it's a Facebook group or uh, Twitter or uh, Board Game Geek comments, just about uh, people getting excited about the combos and the way, ways the game is making their brain think and bringing them joy. Like there is, there's nothing like that. Oh, I bet. That sounds, that sounds yeah. amazing. To read about the thing that you have created, that you have built online about other, like other people talking about it. That just seems surreal almost. Right. <laughs> It is, it is. From a, a book yeah. perspective, I imagine it's it's like publishing a book and having people excited about your world and ask, wanting to ask you questions and know more about your world. Yeah, totally. What about you, Jamie? Yeah, I mean that, that's up there for me. I, I I design games because I want to bring joy to other people. So when I see them express that excitement, whether it's in person or it's on social media, that that just means the world to me. Um, and Red Rising is particularly nice because you are just building, because you're building the hand of cards, it's very easy to take a photo at the end of the game of your final hand of cards. So we've seen a lot of fun photos of people building these, these interesting combos. Um, and that, yeah, that's just, it's, it's wonderful to see. It's still like, because I'm, I'm also a publisher and Alex is now tied to the publishing company as, as a director of sales. It's, um, I, I am super happy to see those photos now, but I'm also anxious because I want to, I want everyone to have the game. And like you guys, you guys are waiting to have the game. Everyone in the U S is waiting to have the game. Everyone in Canada is waiting <laughs> and they are jealously watching people in Europe and Australia, New Zealand showcase their photos. So until everyone has their <laughs> game, I will like 
anxious and then everyone has it, then I'll be able to like fully embrace those, uh, those fun moments, those fun. Photos. Yeah. I, we are, we are friends with a lot of people from Europe on Instagram and through, through everything. And I, I'm uh, so jealous every time I see, I'm like, I like, I don't scroll <laughs> through Instagram as often as I do just cause I'm like, no, I can't, I can't do it right now. But I, th So this is a great transition. So let's start talking, let's talk about the game a little bit. So what, what kind of made you and, and we've kind of talked about the game because when it was announced, it's one of it's one of our favorite books of all time. It's it was featured very heavily on our top five books of all time episode. And so when we saw that there right. was a game that was coming out about this, we were very hyped. Right. <laughs> so we, we've talked about it. We've mm -hmm. talked about it a little bit. But now that we have you guys on, we're excited to hear you talk about it. So what what made you want to design a game around the Red Rising theme? Jamie, you're first on this one. <laughs> I should probably start with, yeah, uh, is I, I discovered the Red Rising book back in 2014 when it came out, and I've read every other book like the week that it, that it came out, uh, all five books in the series. And so it's been a, a long journey for me of loving the books and reaching out to Pierce multiple times, not bugging him, but just letting him know, hey, I'm, I'm here and I want to design a game in this world. I love this world. Uh, so it's been my intellectual property of choice that I've wanted to design a game for for a long, long time. And I think a big reason that the books captured me, aside from you know the wonderful world building and the, the plot, the story, all that is wonderful, but I love the interesting, difficult decisions that the characters face. I, I, they're just, there's so many interesting decisions that they, that they make. And rarely are the decisions like just objectively good or bad. They're making tough decisions that depending on your perspective are good or bad. And I love that. And I wanted to capture that. Eventually when I got the chance to design the game and co-design it with Alex, I wanted to capture that in the game itself. Alex's journey started a little bit later. Alex, you want to share how you got into <laughs> yeah, it? Yeah, so so for me, um, it was honestly, it was interacting with Jamie about this game that he that he wanted design to design and was struggling to get right. Um, like I, I've story and world building has always been just very um, important to me. Um, it's something that I get passionate about. So so seeing Jamie trying to make this game about this world and have it fit with this world made me me want to interact with him about that and we did before i was ever a designer of this game we were interacting about his struggles and trying to figure it out uh, like at the weekly game night um and so so there was this uh basically i got to piggyback on jamie's passion for for the red rising <laughs> mm -hmm. i didn't actually read the books until we had kind of come up with an idea and then i read through them um <laughs> the the first the trilogy the first trilogy uh back to back before we ever started yep. touching anything with the actual design but we had we had an idea in place before i ever read them so tell me like talk me through a little bit then because you're you, you brought up a good point about trying to capture the decisions mm -hmm. that the characters have to make and i can see if you're going to focus on red rising as a theme that you could just do like book one and you could just do the institute mm -hmm. or something right like that could be like a major theme um or it could be a very like political or you know uh, interpersonal type game that's going on um so when you when you think when you were thinking through how do i how do i capture this um what kind of led you to the almost kind of the hand building uh, aspect that you landed on well, let me mention what I tried and failed, what didn't work, and then Alex will tell you what we came to that, that did work. Yeah. Um, because the first four versions of the game that I designed were uh, games where I was trying to capture too much. I was trying to capture the entire, uh, the entire society and the societal structure in the world. And I was also, I think, maybe a little bit too focused on specific story moments, specific plot moments. And I realized two things. One, that I wanted the game to appeal to people who hadn't read the Red Rising books. I didn't want the game to spoil anything for them. Um, I didn't know how to do that yet, but I realized I needed to move away from those plot points, those story points. I wanted to bring them into the world and bite them into the world, but not spoil anything. 
And then the other side of it is that in, in all these versions of the game, often they involved uh, worker placement or bag building, meeple, meeple building. And they, they involved you kind of looking down at this world from an almost godlike perspective. And the golds in the world kind of do share that perspective. So I thought, okay, maybe this is the way to go. You, you're a gold and you're looking down at this world that you're manipulating and playing the pieces of. But it felt too distant. I, I felt detached from the world when I was trying to design the game that way. And that's where I kind of stopped. I, I, I tried that you know, over and over again and it, it just didn't resonate. It didn't feel like I was making tough decisions with the characters in the world. It felt like I was just moving pawns around the table. And I didn't think that was good enough. I, I really wanted the theme to be captured in the game. And so then Alex and I, Alex, why don't you take it from here and show us, show them how we, uh, how we came to the final version. Yeah, so, so it happened during game night, we were playing a uh, really a, a filler game called Fantasy Realms. Um, and, and we've been talking specifically recently about the, the different colors uh, uh, and how many different colors there are in Red Rising and how hard it is to, just from the perspective of, of taking those 14 colors and having them all mean something. Um, but playing Fantasy Realms, Fantasy Realms has, I think, a 10 uh, different suits of cards. And that was in like a 72 card deck. And it worked. And <laughs> so that's kind of like Red Rising is, is heavily inspired by Fantasy Realms as a game. And so so seeing that and be like, okay, well, this works. Why can't we do this and, you know, build a, a meteor game on top of this? And, and that's where kind of the entire inspiration for the gameplay started. And where the tough decisions in the game end up, like tough decisions that the characters make in the book end up resonating, resonating in the game is that the system of removing a card from your hand and putting it out on the table on a location where other players can grab it for themselves, that in itself is a tough decision. Which card am I getting rid of? Which character am I saying, I, never, I no longer want you in my crew. You're out of the crew. <laughs> and which one are you bringing into your house? Which one are you saying, I want you here. You are valuable to me. Um, that is, it, 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 Really is. I mean, I, I play the game so many times at this point. It, it still is a tough decision every time I do that because I love these characters and I love each card has a way that it can be very powerful. But you have to just say, okay, you are you are not right for me right now. This other character is. And and so if I if I understand the game mechanics correctly, you play a card for an effect. But if you have them in your hand at the end of the game, then it's worth your it's worth victory points. Is that I, do I understand that correctly? Um, That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So I I have talked about this, and Dalton knows that I love. <laughs> like multi-use cards and those decisions on do I want to use do I want to use this for the power and give up the x amount of victory points is the type of decision in a game that I enjoy the most and so that's why I'm really looking forward to this because it's such a it's not a complicated decision it's a very complex decision mm -hmm. where it's like I can play this or I can keep it and that that's just kind of you know what what I just love so I'm, I'm really excited to see that so you said that it was a 45 to 90 minute. It's kind of what you shoot for design-wise um, in, in a game. Is this on the 45 or the 90 minute uh, scale? Uh, definitely the 45 minutes. Um, I've, I've heard people uh, saying that a two-player <laughs> game, they're averaging 20 to 30 minutes. Oh, wow. Which That's awesome. I, I could believe, depending on, depending on how much you agonize over those decisions. <laughs> um, yeah, and one of the reasons that we aim for a slightly lower player time is, is again, to be welcoming to people who aren't used to playing, you know, two hour modern hobby games. So yeah, we wanted it to be welcoming for them for if they only have, you know, 30 minutes at the end of the night, 45 minutes at the end of the night to play a game. For sure. I want to ask a question real quick on uh, just stepping back. You see, so you're talking about, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to play this card for its effect, which I need, or, or I want it out of my hand in terms of a scoring. Um, and then you also mentioned that another player can kind of like pick that card up. So do you find that kind of third element of like, can I afford to play this card can i afford that the to allow this someone else to pick this up or give this opportunity does that kind of play into that decision as well oh yeah it, it definitely does um especially uh, people 
uh, are talking about the cards where you like uh, get other cards. So you play you play a card and that lets you increase your hand size, which is powerful. Um, but if you do that, you're giving the person next to you the opportunity to pick up that same card, and then on their following turn, they can get an additional card. Right. Um, <laughs> so it, it seems like within groups, there's there's a pretty big difference uh, from one group to another whether people tend to to play those cards and let someone else get the benefit, or mm -hmm. to to get rid of or bury or hold on to those cards so that no one gets the benefit. And every time you play a card, uh, not only are you giving it a chance for someone else to get it, but all, oftentimes you're putting that card on top of another card. And so you're covering up a card mm. that someone else could have access to. Oh, so gotcha. if I know that Alex just played a, a great green card, I don't want anyone else to have it. Maybe I'm hoping that it gets back to me on a future turn, or I could probably grab it that turn, but maybe I just want to cover it up. I can put a card on top of it, and that prevents other players from getting it until they take that card on top. There are other ways to manipulate that, but you're always kind of thinking about which card am I playing, where am I playing it, mm. and which card am I covering up by playing it. Wow. Yeah. It's a lot of fun decisions. So this this is a book episode. So we are um, right after this, we're yeah. going to be talking all about Red Rising, the, the the magic or the technology systems in Red Rising, the world building, and all of that. So um, I do want to talk about Red Rising with you all. Uh, the 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 book. So at this point, if you're listening and you have not read Red Rising. I would recommend that you go ahead and hop off because we, we, we are going to be talking about the first book, The Red Rising, which is a trilogy, but the first book is called Red Rising. That's what we're going to be talking about. And there will be there may, there may be spoilers that we talk about. And so at this point, go ahead and pause or hop off and um, and, and then read it and then come back. So, <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. So so with that being said, let's talk about the book a little bit. The, the book we've kind of Everyone at this point has read the book, so they know what it is. We don't have to summarize it for them. But I, I want to kind of let's let's just start out with one of my favorite questions. Whenever we're talking about a book, because it, especially a book like this, because it, there are a lot of characters. Who is your favorite character? Who do you connect with? Who who do you feel is well written? Yeah, this is so hard with this this series. Uh, there are so many characters <laughs> who are so good, um, and and they're all very present like like sometimes you read a book and there's a lot of characters that are kind of all the samey um or that don't have enough distinct personality but everyone in red rising has a distinct like unique personality you know who they are you have feelings about them mm. but if i had to pick i would probably pick mustang um which which is a little bit of the um i, I feel like it, it's a little bit of like the you know uh world world peace uh pageant, pageant response <laughs> but it's, I, I i appreciate her her desire to to work things out between people and um just her her overall sense of of goodness um that is mm -hmm. less lost i think than it is sometimes for other characters yeah i think you bring a good point there about the diversity that he's able to bring especially like when you consider that he had to typecast the character mm -hmm. already right by assigning them a color yeah right so like the gold is going to be noble or whatever and um and the reds are going to be fiery and passionate and angry and um so he has to already kind of give them that very forward uh, emotion or, or disposition or whatever mm. um and then the ability to still give uh, i don't know detail and nuance to like all these golds that you meet throughout the uh, institute for instance you know the difference between cactus and, and severo and mustang and it's like those are three entirely different characters but they they all still meet the criteria for gold so i think it's a real mm. accomplishment what about you jamie it's very it's difficult there's a character that shows up later i don't think it appears in, in book one that i would typically say is my favorite a, a guy named ragnar but uh, I I have the most fun reading like the 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 big like the oversized personality and oversized body characters like Pax <laughs> and and later Ragnar. Yeah. I just have I don't know 
they just see I, the, I, I like the way that Pierce writes them. I just have fun when they're whenever they're on their page. And then kind of on the opposite end of the spectrum, Severo, who, who is not big, but he is, you know, uh, clever and wily. And I, I have a lot of fun reading whenever Severo shows up on the page, too. Yeah, I think Dalton and I are pretty in sync that Severo is our favorite character. Um, <laughs> I think it's been well established in previous. I've, na- I've named Severo as like some of my one of my favorite characters, like all time. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Which and he just grows throughout the series. So what what a great what a great character. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, two <laughs> characters that'll make you smile at least in the first book are definitely Pax and <laughs> Both of them have really yeah. funny moments. Yeah. So um what was what was the most memorable part of the Red Rising book for you? Um like what 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 part of the book do you just go back to over and over again? I can answer while I was just thinking about it a little bit because <laughs> we've We've answered this question over time after talking to people, but I think it might even change over time because uh, the way mm-hmm. we think about the book, the way we talk about it. But the one that keeps coming back to me for, for book one um, is the scene where where, where Darrow uh, ends up essentially whipping a, a character who does something really terrible. And then he, he gives the whip to that character. And I think eventually to maybe to Pax or to someone else and says, you know, whip me too. This is this is the type of leader I want to be. I, I, I don't want to be the just the person who punishes but I, I want to feel your pain too. When we feel pain, we feel it together. And that to me was like the moment that I was like, I, I want to read every book that, that Pierce writes. I want to read every book in this world. Cause that is, again, I don't know if that was the right decision, but it was such an interesting decision for Darrow to make. And it, 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 I read a lot of books where like people are leaders, but they're leaders because the author has said that they're a leader now, mm. but in, in Red Rising, I get why why people follow Darrow. I get it because of the decisions he makes. And, and that was one of those decisions. Yeah, absolutely. You bringing that up gave me chills because that that is one of my favorite moments <laughs> yeah. of the book too. Yeah. yeah, He whips the person. And then he, like like you just said, he gives the whip to someone. He's like, you're not doing it hard enough. <laughs> and so like... Yeah, he right. gives it to yeah. Pax and tells him to start over. Start, right yeah, now. even start <laughs> over, yeah. Which, yeah. which is, you know, that lead, like the servant leadership type thing, which it just... Mm-hmm. is very exemplified yeah. what about you alex yeah i think in the first book it's it is honestly it's the moment when um he when darrow has a conversation with um one of the i want to call them instructors but they're not instructors <laughs> um the proctors. one of the adults proctors. Yeah. Uh, proctors. Proctors. Yeah. there we go uh and the just sort of the, that slow realization that the game is rigged that to win mm-hmm. you you don't you don't have to just win. You have to to beat the the uh, you know you have to beat the 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 rules. You have to cheat. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's so demoralizing. Um, but the choice to mm-hmm. the choice to continue despite that is amazing. Yeah. yeah, I think he does a really good job of setting up um, some very serious problems for Darrow. And as a, as a reader, it's really fun when an author can set up a because I think both of your examples do this where the author can set up a problem or an obstacle. Um, and you're like, how would I solve that? And in both cases, it's like, <laughs> I don't know, like that's unwinnable. Like, what do you do? You know, right. like one of your dudes, you know, was going to do this awful thing to this girl. And like, now are you going to kill him and alienate half your people? Or are you going to, you know, like, uh, what are you going to do? And in both of those cases, like it's fun to see Darrow kind of come to a conclusion that I, I just didn't think of. Um, mm-hmm. and then, you, and like you said, Jamie, I think that helps solidify, like, that is why he is a leader. That's why it's believable. Right. Yeah. 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 So I, I want to be cognizant of uh, of our time today. So I want to ask one more question. Do we have, do we have time for one more? Okay. Yeah, cool. Definitely. So what about this book do you think sets it apart from other fantasy novels? So we we have talked about on on our podcast before that there's just something about it that 
I mean, Dalton's read it, what, 25 times now? Probably, <laughs> maybe not that time. Three. But it's one of these <laughs> that there are a lot of these books that we keep coming back to. But every single time I reread Red Rising, I'm like, I just want to read this more and more. And so what what about that? Because I think both of you kind of share that, that you, you we've been talking about. What, what about it sets it apart? What makes it so great um, and why people want to keep reading it? Honestly, I, I think it is, um, it's the, the same thing. It's characters making tough choices that their situations are not real life. They're, they're, they're uh, super, super realistic. Uh, but but the, the choices that they're having to make resonate. Uh, there are people in tough decisions in places that are not black and white. And it's not a matter of just doing the right thing. It's a matter of figuring out how to continue despite the fact that every choice is bad. And, and that I think is something that people deal with in real life. Um, and so stories like this give us hope. They give us, um, they, they give us a sense that there, you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, or maybe there's going to keep on being tunnels, but, but at least there, there is a way to continue forward despite everything being dark right now. That was really well put. I like that. Yep. It, that that would that would also be my number one answer. Alex said it way way better than I could have, but that would be my number one answer. But one literary thing that I can mention in the book that I think is is uh, is is really impressive is how uh, Pierce keeps opening up the world a little bit more in ways that I didn't expect. Like in the first book, the first fifty to maybe hundred pages are are you know underground. And I kind of thought that was going to be the whole book. I thought the the struggle of the entire first book was to be to get out of that. Uh, that underground cavern mining system. And then when we moved on past that right in, within the first book, I was like, oh, wow, this, this world is so much bigger and I get to experience it right away. And then it happens again. I, I don't want to spoil for future books, but the world does keep getting bigger in ways where the world both feels small, uh, like it's not uh, a universe, it's it's a solar system, but it also he, he just keeps unraveling a little more about the world that, that makes sense, that fits with everything. And that that's what keeps me reading, I think, that but I, I want to know a little bit more, whether it's another character, another another planet, another piece of the world. There, it seems like there's always something else to, to explore and discover. And Pierce does, a, I think, a wonderful job of unraveling that. For he does reader. a fantastic job. When I first read, kind of when Darrow goes up to the surface and kind of sees sees the world mm. i felt personally betrayed like I, like I, I connected <laughs> with Darrow and like this is it they're they're doing the thing they are making mars habitable they are terraforming mars to use a board game term right <laughs> um and all of a sudden yeah. it's it's there's already life there it's sustainable and i was just like oh shoot come on like you, you can't do that to, how dare you can't you? do that to Darrow. He's, he's awesome so i i, I agree i think yeah. pierce writes that phenomenally well and in uh, in the later books as well i it, does not go away so (laughs) so dalton do you have anything else to add or any other questions that you wanted to no i think this has been a really great um introduction to the topic for it for us so i really appreciate you guys joining um and it's great to hear your perspectives both on the game and then also on on the book that we're about to spend the next hour or so talking about (laughs) yeah absolutely thank you thank you both for joining thank you for joining jamie alex do you want to do uh any promotion where can people find you kind of Sure. Yeah. If they, if they want to learn more about Stolmeyer Games, there's a couple different resources they can check out, but everything is at StolmeyerGames.com. There, if, if, if you want to go and check out the game, uh, you can pre-order it from us or order it by the time this goes live. Uh, you can order that from our web store. Uh, you can, if you want, I, I write a lot about Kickstarter and crowdfunding and entrepreneurship. If you want to learn about that, that's on the website. And if you want to learn about game design or other games that might be like Red Rising, I have a YouTube channel about that too. But it's all linked there on the, the Stolmeyer Games homepage. 
And honestly, if you want to find out more about me, uh, just go to Stomire Games and go to the, <laughs> the about section and find find my my name. And uh, I think my like my Twitter handle and everything is is linked there. So that's the easiest way to Perfect. follow me as well. Thank you guys so much for having us today. This is this is wonderful to chat with you. Yeah, great. Yeah, we appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, it, it was it was a great talk. So yeah, you too. Thank you both. Thank you, you very much, and See we wish you the care. best and have Bye. a great rest of your day. Cheers. Welcome back from the interview. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it was great having them on. Thank Absolutely. you for coming on, Jamie and Alex. It, it was wonderful talking with you. Let's uh, let's kind of hop in and start talking about the book a little bit more. So mm -hmm. I'm really excited about the board game, and we talked about the uh, the book, but I'm excited to analyze the book. I know. Let's talk about this. This is it. our favorite part. Yeah, this is our favorite part. We've uh, we've been saying that we wanted to do this for over a year. Yeah. Because. I think when we, when was, we envisioned the podcast, this book was on the list of yes. books we wanted to bring yeah, down. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Pierce Brown, who is the author of the book, mm -hmm. just does a fantastic job, I think, of kind of bringing this world to life, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit in, in, in the upcoming. But before that... Before that... Tradition states. Tradition states. <laughs> <laughs> we must do a 30-second summary. <laughs> Even though we've already been talking about it in the mind section in our interview, but don't worry about that. I left all of that part out. so I, I know. <laughs> there is no 30-second summary. You don't know what book we're talking about Yeah, yet. exactly. Let us tell you. Yeah. <laughs> and and if you haven't read the book, then this is really all you need. This is all we, you need to know. Yeah, this, this is all is, you need to know. This is going to be a great summary. I'm willing to go first. I okay, think. let's I think do I, it. I think you've gone first last time, maybe, if I remember I, right. I don't know. I, I don't know either, <laughs> but I feel like it's probably my turn. Let me get out this timer. Yeah. As always, I have not rehearsed. I've just taken a couple notes, so we'll see if I run out of time or not. Have you ever... No, yeah, you ended, like, really early one time. I ended, like, really... I, <laughs> I think, like, of the couple times... Like, I, I've been dead on, like, once or twice, and it's super early one time and totally missed another. Like, I think <laughs> so missed So your average is good. Yeah, my average is good, so I'm hoping to be kind of close here and keep the average good. All right. Three, two, one, go. Darrow is a simple miner whose wife gets him into trouble. Ugh. She she becomes a martyr and a symbol. Marrow, Darrow gets mad and dies. Darrow is revived and decides to re-envision himself. He becomes a gold and enters gold school. After meeting his best friend Cassius, Darrow decides to win uh, gold school. Several is introduced and he's scary. Cassius gets mad and stabs Darrow. Darrow basically dies, but then he gets mad again and is revived by a pretty girl. Darrow and pretty girl uh, decide to solve the game and win it. Several joins them. Darrow starts winning a lot. Proctors cheat. Darrow is mad again. Bear Man dies. Darrow gets really mad and conquers the Proctors. Everyone Stop. thinks, oh, <laughs> I was on the last point. Darrow gets really mad. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the book can pretty much be summarized in that. And Daryl gets mad. <laughs> Daryl is upset. <laughs> oh, <sighs> that's did, not bad. I, I'm that, like, that wasn't bad. Yeah. I was like four seconds long. That's okay. That was, I'm, I'm all right with that. I'll I uh, I did not rehearse this one as much as I I normally do. I've okay. had a pretty busy week. So. Okay. All right. Well, maybe this. Hold on. Today's the day that you. I I went long one time. I think I would have had it if I hadn't called Darrow Marrow at one point because I was trying to say Darrow gets mad and Mad and Darrow got combined into Marrow. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. I I'm ready. All right. Three, two. One, go. Daryl likes to dig, dig holes. Then he gets in trouble with his wife for looking at stars. She sings the song so bad that people kill her. Hole Digger gets mad and tries to die. Task failed successfully. He gets the most epic makeover of all time and gets this badass scholarship to like the Harvard of killing people. <laughs> gets drafted in the first round. Diglett kills his new friend brother. Not really a good thing. They play the Hunger Game. Mars splits the party. Daryl finds a horse, makes enemies with a small wolf. Dugdrio makes an army of outcasts. The teachers decide to cheat. Shovel decides to take over the teacher's dorm and kisses the horse. Arrow wins the Hunger Games and sells out to the enemy. Oh, nicely done. You were at like <laughs> 28 
eight seconds. Okay, okay, Excellent. I like it. Man, there's some really good stuff in there too. <laughs> I, <laughs> I should, when I was writing it, I was like, I'm just gonna like never call Darrow Darrow again. <laughs> yeah, just Arrow the entire time. Arrow Diglett, the Drio. <laughs> he likes to dig holes. I don't he know. Likes to dig holes. He, it's a core part of his personality. It really is. He has really strong hands, dexterous fingers. A dexterous. <laughs> I, I love that as a trope for his character that he has the strongest hands. Yes. <laughs> it feels like a My Hero Academia like superpower. Yeah, it's, it's like his weird quirk. Like he can. Squ- squeeze anything to death yes. like that's his superpower <laughs> amongst anything else that's what he's really good at oh geez that's funny yeah can you imagine darrow like if he had been made instead of a gold into like an obsidian so he got like eight fingers <laughs> unlimited power he'd just be unstoppable <laughs> it'd be op it would not be a fun book to read it just, that's right it'd be like superman it's just nah it's not interesting <laughs> <laughs> he has no kryptonite he has eight fingers on his hands what are you supposed to do oh man okay so Already, let's we're we're talking about obsidians, golds, reds. Yeah. Let's just break down the structure. Let's just do it. Okay. Let's uh. So this world is not like our own world. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think. I guess I would consider the different colors. So mm-hmm. different people are different colors, which is basically a different cast. I I, yeah. I would. Assume, this is a huge like world building element. Yes. In absolutely. Story. They are like the same species. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is confirmed in yeah, yeah in the series. Yeah. So. They uh they kind of come came from Earth, but like it's a hierarchy. Golds mm-hmm. are at the top, reds are at the bottom, yeah. and that is very much defined right at the start of the book. Yeah, I think it's such a cool world building element because it it gives you this feeling of like oppression and hierarchy, just like immediately, right? Just like by the way that it's described, you get this feeling of like oh, Darrow is fighting a losing battle just like from the get-go right he's just like set out at a disadvantage yes he is but what i think is really interesting is like when he is in the mine at the beginning of the book when he believes that the reds are the only people on mars and Mm -hmm. they are trying to make it habitable for humanity yeah he knows that he's at the bottom of the food chain but Mm -hmm. it's it's more along the lines of this is my job Mm -hmm. this is what i'm good at the golds are good at ruling it's not it, Mm -hmm. it almost doesn't feel like a pyramid where it very much is yeah the reds are the base the golds are the top mm-hmm. so it's it's just a really interesting world building and kind of like a psychological thing that the uh the, the reds kind of support society but they are nobodies yeah it, it's cool how he has his whole society like he talks about like reds are of passion and reds are yes. of like love and reds are of music and dancing and yep you know they have they do have things that give them pride and give them definition we we talked we mentioned in the interview um with jamie and alex that it, it's super impressive how much definition he pierce brown is able to achieve amongst the reds just even in like the opening couple of chapters right you get like how, how the lambdas feel versus how like you know the the hell divers feel versus how like the like the women and his mother and like they all have like all of this like definition but these common themes that run through them of hot-headedness and passion and love and and i think that is such an achievement amongst like his his writing style that like yes there is all this definition um and all these prerequisites where like characters have to have these character traits um but they still end up being like these intricate detailed interesting characters yeah i think that's a great point where they have they are able to provide unique characteristics to all of the reds even Mm -hmm. though that they are defined by this one trait yeah so so that's really interesting um and i it's also like i don't think that i like it in principle but i really like how pierce brown does it where it's like the golds are the bad 
right? Like mm. it seems very like elementary almost in that yeah. sense where it's like gold, bad, red, good, right? <laughs> we, we can just go with that. But like as you progress through the story, you, you start to see the dimensions of the golds as well. Yeah. And I, I think Darrow says something even that like not all golds are bad. Mm-hmm. Or, or he starts to feel that way like he falls in love with mustang he he forms a bond with severo mm-hmm. and he and he starts to understand that it's not just this one dimensional thing that he mm-hmm. sees all the other colors as all the colors have multiple dimensions which I, I i think is just a really interesting way that pierce brown writes it yeah uh, sure. they, they have this overarching trait but then they have very definitive personalities in that mm-hmm and so not all the golds are necessarily villains in that sense, mm-hmm. or and not all the reds are necessarily heroes right. in that sense. So right. uh, I, I think that's kind of interesting. Yeah. It starts to like already kind of raise the question that I think Daryl has to really face like later in the series, like not so much in the book Red Rising, but raising the question of like, what's the end game here, right? Is the end game just like kill all of the golds? Yes. You know, like that's a, con- yes, that's your answer. <laughs> <laughs> Get mad, kill all golds. Um, <laughs> like that's, that's fine, but like there's Julian, right? Who's introduced very early, who oh, is kind of this like rip. picture of innocent, right? <laughs> in peace, who is like this this picture of innocence, right? Who who Darrow has to just like brutally kill and kind of like accept that part of himself of like, is this like what I'm like willing to do to actually like, and is this again, is this the end game? Is this, is it killing all the golds, even the ones who haven't done anything wrong? Yeah. We, we talked in our interview with Jamie and Alex about like your most memorable moment from Red Rising. Mm. And that that is my answer is mm. when Darrow has to kill Julian. Yeah. Because he, he's made this his friend with Cassius and yeah. he knows what's happening and he makes the decision because he, he has this internal struggle, right? He's never killed someone before. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden he's put in this unwinnable situation where he has to kill somebody, somebody that like his new his only friend at that point right <laughs> his little brother and like that that's an unwinnable decision and he still sides with the reds at that point mm-hmm. right he he sides with the mission which like i guess the other option is death so like yeah, yeah. But, but i do think it's funny <laughs> in that scene that julian is like come on like you know if i don't win like my family's going to like you know disown me and it's like yeah but i would be dead yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's way worse for me. <laughs> That's very true. <laughs> but I, I just really like that part because as people n- know, if you've listened to the podcast before, I yeah. really enjoy the psychological battles almost more so than kind of the physical battle yeah. battles and the shows of strength. And so this is definitely a choice that Daryl has to make very early on where he kind of shows his non-hero side. Yeah. Right? Like I, I think Darrow is a very interesting and a fantastic leader. Yeah. I don't, like I don't know if he's a hero. Like maybe mm-hmm. I. I just really enjoy like that dark side because like uh, the typical hero would have found a way out of that without killing. Mm. Not, maybe not. That's a good point though. Yeah, but he's uh you know he's willing to do what it takes. Yeah, which yeah. is kind of interesting. So so yeah, let's, like let's, is that murder like justified just because yeah. he needed to? Yep. You know, I mean it's a gold. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> it's the gold. We've been taught through the book that they're bad people. So, like, is are they okay to kill? You but, know, but Julian isn't responsible for the oppression of the Reds. And he he's written as such a uh, humble character. I think yeah. Julian is and it's an innocent character, which I I think is really intentional by Pierce. Right? It, yeah. It's it's almost like Darrow is killing his own innocence at that point. Yeah, which, Man, that's which a I, good way to put it. Which I just think is really cool. But okay, so let's talk about Darrow and heroes. Yeah. Do you think that, we have to at some point? Yeah. Right? Do you think that Darrow is a hero? Yeah, I think overall, yes, I think that Darrow is a hero. Okay. Um, I think he, I think he's a, I think he's a fantastic hero. I think he meets what we look for in a hero in that his his flaws 
and his struggles are very relatable and they're very human. Right? Yeah. Like, yeah. so when you see, you, you see first off that like his, his, you know, his love dies in, in this like awful, you know, terrible way where that was he's horrible. Dude, dude, that is that, shocking. That is fucked up. Like, <laughs> the fact that you have up. to pull the legs while they're hanging to break the neck. Like when <sighs> I, the first time I read this book and I read that, I was like, okay, this is a, this is the book. Like, the, yeah, that's the like, direction this book is going. I, I was just, this I book was isn't fucking around. floored. Yeah. Like, I was just, wow. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Sorry to cut you off. But no, like, no, that, and I love that you said it because, like, we should mention also early and often, Pierce is good with repetition of words. That yeah. Is, that, is a, that is a very, that's a strength of his. Because he, he, he says multiple times in the book, on Mars, whatever the quote is, on Mars, the gravity isn't strong enough to break the yes. so they, Oh, they let the loved ones, You know, like, <laughs> you have to pull the, like, they let the loved ones do it. Or yeah. whatever, you know, whatever yep. the quote is. Like, and it's said very, very early in the book. And you're like, oh, wow, that's like kind of sad. And then it's said in <laughs> reference to EO and you like, it oh. hits. <laughs> oh, that's sad. That's really it, sad. <laughs> it like shatters you. And you're like, yeah. oh my God, I didn't expect that, that quote to come back. Right. You know? But I think like those things make Darrow, like his struggle and his... His, his like climb and his decisions where he's like, yes, I'm deciding to kill Julian, for instance. Yes, I'm deciding to execute or allow Cassius to execute Titus. Right? Oh, yeah. All of a sudden, those become like kind of decisions where you're like, oh, that's a moral, that's a moral quagmire, you know? <laughs> right. And There's, it's not winnable. And it's not winnable. And I think I would navigate through it, and maybe I hope to come to kind of a same conclusion. And I don't know that it's the right one, but I feel like it's the one that I would come to. And I think Daryl kind of embodies those decisions kind of throughout the story. Yeah, I think the choices that Daryl makes make him a fantastic leader. And mm -hmm. like I realized that I would not be able to lead an army. Just as effectively as Darrow could. Yeah. <laughs> just because of some of the Of genetically that modified makes. superhumans? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I may be better at that. <laughs> could you tell your army to sew themselves into dead horses? <laughs> uh, I don't know if they would do it. I could probably say it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that Darrow Darrow's a very interesting hero in, in, yeah. in my eyes. I, I, I think that he is a hero. Yeah, he's definitely the protagonist. Right? Yeah, he's definitely the we'll, protagonist. we'll get that yeah. out of the way. It's yeah, first person. <laughs> he's always still like perspective we get in the yeah, story. It's, it's it's pretty easy to determine who the protagonist is in a first person present book. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But he he's not he's not a hero that is all altruistic. I that's a good word for it. Yeah, I I, I think that kind of describes him in that yeah. sense. But yeah. I do Eo think is Eo is Eo. Right. She's oh, the ultimate goodness. Or she's the ultimate the goodness. She's she's kind of the goal. Yeah. And I, I think that throughout the book, Darrow keeps remembering Eo, his wife, right? Yeah. Keeps remembering and what Eo's Eo's sacrifice and her love and devotion to get the Reds out of the oppression. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what keeps him on his straight and narrow path. Yeah. And it's just kind of interesting uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that I think the further you get in the book, the further he strays from that path. Mm. Yeah. So. I love that just, I guess, as we started to kind of talk about other heroes in the story, like EO is obviously a very obvious hero. Yes. Right. Yep. yep. Um, Mustang can kind of be considered another one. Right. And I think you're right that Darrow is constantly looking back at EO and his, that she is a martyr, that she is optimist is maybe, <laughs> maybe not the right <laughs> word. Right. But oh, she, yeah, no, she's naive, you know, she, she's naive and she's unrealistic uh, maybe. Right. Like early, early on in the story, Darrow says, I live for you. And she says, you need to live for more. Yeah. You know, like, and, and so she has this very naive, but like almost pure and just like 
uninfluenced kind of view on the world that they're in. Um, and Mustang has kind of the realistic one, right? Like Mustang has this view of like, here's what leadership could look like in our society. And it's not, it's not like this perfect world, like what EO had envisioned, but it, it is like achievable and it's realistic. And so Darrow, I think kind of like is warring between like these two. And I think that's why they're both kind of written as love interests also, you know, because it like muddies like the choice for him. Um, but he's like, he's on that spectrum and he's trying to figure out what is, again, what is the end game going to look like here? And I like, I love that rant from like EO being like the idealistic, this is what it needs to be. This is perfection. Uh-huh. And kind of like Darrow going into his transformation and entering uh, the gold school, uh-huh. with, uh, the academy, the right? academy, the yeah. academy. Yeah. Words um, with, with that kind of mindset. And as he kind of understands and grows more accustomed with the golds, he grows closer to Mustang, which is the, the mm-hmm. realistic and understanding and the more pragmatic of the, the two love interests. So yeah. I think that like, oh man, Pierce Brown just does a fantastic job of like writing in the way that Darrow is feeling and understanding the world along with the characters and the personalities that are around him at the time. For sure. So for sure. I, I love, we've been talking a lot about EO. I love EO as a character. I think when you, on the reread, you realize that every, it feels like every word that EO says is like chosen. And, and it doesn't make sense at the time. Like when you were looking through, you're like, Oh, she's like, that's really sweet. But like when you read it back, um, specifically after reading the trilogy, like uh, you, you realize like, um, very early on, she uses the term "break the chains" for the first time. Yes, you know, and that becomes kind of like a that be, like it's not really discussed too much in Red Rising. It's not really a spoiler, but like in the series, that becomes almost like a catchphrase. A catchphrase, <laughs> is a, maybe a disrespectful thing to call it. Yeah, a, a battle cry, or it's like the term of the rebellion is "break the chains." Yes, it's because of that kind of video that you know. Um, where she's like she says that but she says it first to darrow in the garden and again it's that it's that concept of kind of repetition of words that that pierce that pierce is really good with no i i agree we've we've talked about i i just want to put this in because it's one of my favorite quotes from any book of all time uh and we've been talking about leadership and how darrow's a, a fantastic leader and we see a lot of different leaders in this book mm-hmm. right we see the jackal who, who who leads through fear yeah we see darrow who leads through initially through fear also initially through fear uh we see mustang who leads through cunning we yeah. see several who leads through just like sheer like insanity several, several's a cult yeah <laughs> <laughs> that is not an understatement like but, several's leading a cult <laughs> <laughs> that that's very fair um but i i love the quote do you want to quote it uh, are you talking about my favorite quote from the yes, book? Yes, <laughs> I am, because um, it's also mine. <laughs> yeah, this was also, uh, this was, when, when we asked this question to Jamie about what's like kind of your most memorable, or your your favorite moment from the book or whatever, um, it, it's mine as well. We shared the time where Darrow uh, allows Pax to whip him, right? Sort of like the whipping of Cactus, and then he allows Pax to whip him. Great and scene. He, right, He great scene. And then he stands up and he, he says... Uh, something along the lines of like, you don't follow me because I'm the strongest Pax is. You don't follow me because I'm the, the brightest or the smartest Mustang is. You follow me because you don't know where I'm, where you're going. And I do chills, literally <laughs> chills. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then, and then Mustang kind of calls him on his bullshit, but, <laughs> yeah, right. but, but I just, I, I think that's just, just like an, an incredible sense of emotional awareness at that point. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Because he, he knows that he's not, the strongest he's not the brightest but he knows how to pull on people's strengths and how to utilize them and i think that's what really makes a great leader yeah whereas darrow is a hero he's not i don't think the best hero i think he's one of the best leaders we have seen in fiction yeah um he's, he's no 
Oh, what's what's the other call out? He's he's no uh, yeah, he's no Genghis. He's no um, oh yeah. Uh, Caesar, he's no Wigan. Or yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that'd be the other leader, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> the uh, the Easter eggs in this book are the uh, Easter eggs point. are fun. Yeah, so it, it's kind of hard to talk about this book outside of Darrow, mm-hmm. right? Because it's written from his perspective. Yeah, we have so much of his perspective. Yeah. <laughs> so let, let's kind of talk about his story a little bit. Okay. Maybe like how the story progresses and how he changes throughout the story. We've alluded to it a little bit, mm-hmm. but let's do that. Where is Daryl at the start of the story? Like what what is his mindset and how does that transform as he, you know, his wife is killed? Right, et right, right. Yeah, I think, this, I think this book has an excellent exposition. I think it's really, really good. It really is. Like it starts with like a prologue that kind of gives you this like glimpse into what is coming, you know, where you... You get a feeling that he's an intruder. You get a feeling that he has kind of successfully infiltrated, you know, and he's talking about what everybody else is seeing and what he's thinking, and you get a feeling for his anger, right? It's, like, right right there in the prologue. It's in the first couple, like, paragraphs of the book. And then you, like, transition, and you get this, like, uh, Jamie talked about kind of, like, the growing perspective throughout the book right where you start in just like the mind and your entire vision of the book is narrowed to like even just a single tunnel right the first scene that you have with darrow he is he's digging like he's in a he's in a machine digging and like that is your perspective on the world and it really kind of fixates you to like okay this is again it's, it's 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 assisted by the narrative style of like this first person this first person present tense where like you feel like you're also in the mining in the minor right you're also in the tunnels and like that's all you're kind of like focused on he runs into a problem and like your your mind immediately goes to like fixing like that problem and you see some of his cunning immediately right you see some of his like problem solving skills and everything his risk taking his risk taking (laughs) that's a good point yeah you 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 kind of like get that he's a fighter right you get that he's a risk taker and it's all packed into just like honestly a couple of short pages right looking back on it before the reread so this is my second time reading through it i know you've read it Four, I think this is three or four, four, probably four. Yeah. Rereading it, I did not realize how short that time is before you right. realize that Mars is actually already habited. Yeah. It was just kind of interesting looking back on it because it felt like such a much longer part of the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then you realize that, oh, it's it's really not. It's but really it's, not, yeah. It's kind of it's it's interesting because you are seeing the world through Darrow's eyes. Yeah. You you kind of are able to put yourself in his shoes and 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 get yeah. that sense. Yeah. I wonder if it's because like the book is constantly looking back on that time of his life, right? So it becomes oh, okay, really yeah. like sol- almost solidified, like you're constantly reviewing it, and so uh, it's like always on your mind, you know. And he's he's he he references back to like the laurels, you know, like the laurel ceremony, which happens like real again really early in the book, <laughs> um, anywhere from like five to three hundred pages. I don't actually know. I don't actually know. Books, <laughs> it's like within the first hour in our terms. Um, and it's this immediate like kind of solidification of the themes of like oppression, like of and of injustice, right? Unfairness. Unfairness. Yeah, it's right. just just propagated throughout the book. Yeah. So where do, where does where do you think that the exposition ends? Uh, with Eo's death. With Eo's death. Okay. Yeah. I think that's like because that's kind of the call to action. That's like, I mean, I guess technically it would be with when Darrow is like Lazarus. Yeah. Uh, to, you know. Yeah. Like, um, but it but it feels like it's like Eo dies and. Dar- then there's kind of like a filler scene where like Darrow like does this heroic thing of like burying her and then he gets hanged too. Right. And, but that that like is it feels like kind of still maybe part of the call to action end of exposition to me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. And so when we are moving into that rising action, right? So so Darrow 
his whole life, his whole motivation is ego. Yeah. Right. Until he gets brought up to the surface and meets Mickey. And yeah. I think, I think exactly. We, yeah. we had the same like, Kind the first and only point. Violet, I think, in the Red Rising book. Oh, the yeah, first, yeah. The first book, yep. <laughs> so, uh, so real quick, we'll, we'll, side break. How many colors are there? Do you know? 14. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Did you not think? Uh, it was, I, I, like, it's <laughs> one of those things that, like, I, I don't know. Like, I probably don't have a right to know that, but I do just know that there are Yeah, 14. I was just like, I, there are a lot more than I thought. Yeah, right? there are a lot more than you think. Yeah, uh, but but and, I and there up, are way more than are described in the first book. They right, are explored yeah. more in the rest of the trilogy. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Whatever. So, <laughs> fine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I could name them, but <laughs> but yeah. So the, the rising action starts when he's brought up to the surface, right? Yeah. And I would agree. we we, t- we discussed it with uh, Alex and Jamie, where like because it's that first person present tense, you feel betrayed yourself, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Like, oh my goodness. They're doing this. They think that they're doing this for the rest of humanity when really they're not. Right. right? They're, they're doing it to support the golds. So he goes in, he meets Mickey, um, and mm-hmm. that kind of starts his transformation, both physically and I think mentally. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so Mickey's the violet who cuts him up and mm-hmm. does all this stuff. And so how do you think that, like, obviously this changes him physically? How do you think that, like, his mental state? How, how, how do you think that changes through, like, EO's death into becoming a gold? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Because I think at EO's death, he is suicidal, right? We, we know that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he kind of did he, he, commit it, <laughs> he essentially committed. And he even talks about, like, um, when he's being hanged, like, the moment of regret that suicidal people, like, experience, right? And so yep. he absolutely is. Um, he gets kind of this mission, right? He gets, again, kind of the call to action. He gets this exposure to like what he could do. Um, but I think his vision still, even early in his carving is very narrow, right? He talks about yep. in like the drafting, like if I just had a bomb on me right now, I could blow all these golds up. Yeah. Right. It's obvious at that point that he is, he's still just thinking about killing golds. Like he's thinking about just being this, uh, this tool of the sons of Aries, this like, almost just a terrorist weapon is kind of what he envisions himself as. I think coming out, so it goes from like suicidal maniac to like (laughs) terrorist weapon. And over the course of the book, he kind of grows out of that. Yeah. As as his physical capabilities start to expand and enhance, I think his mental capabilities do so as well. Yeah, for sure. So he starts to understand that, oh, just me taking out 60 gold with a bomb is actually not the most effective way to bring down the society. Yeah. Uh, which I just thought was kind of interesting. And also, do you, do you feel like that that thought was propagated through his transformation or was that thought kind of always with him? Which thought? Like the fact that he grows from understanding that the better way to take down the society or, or to infiltrate the society is going through this long process rather than just like the immediate win with like a, with a, like a suicide oh, bomb. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, first off, I think he has a miss. I think he has like a misconception of what the sons of Aries are, right? Because it's kind of saturated in that propaganda that the golds are putting in front of the reds of like the sons of Aries are blowing up all these children and everything. And we don't really learn in red rising so much. I think that's, there's a lot of open questions at the end of the first book. Um, I think it up nicely for a sequel. It does. Which good news guys. (laughs) Yeah. Good news. there There are several more books, but I think it's an open question. Like what are the motivations of the sons of Aries? Like what are, what is their end game? What are they trying to do? And I think that Darrow, even through his transformation, doesn't really understand that, you know? I think it's really only when he gets to the point of being 
recuperated and healed by Mustang and kind of hearing her vision of leadership. And they kind of like come to this conclusion together of like what leadership in the Institute could look like to them that he starts to think outside of, I think it's, I think at that point is when he starts to change from, I'm just going to be like some cleverly placed suicide bomb into <laughs> right. like maybe EO's dream can be more than that. Right. Maybe yeah. it can be a, Maybe he can affect real change. Right. Yeah. He is the knife rather than the hammer. Yeah. Yep. So he he recuperates. He becomes this fantastic gold with these amazingly strong hands. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Such good hands. Oh, my he learns goodness. to ride a horse, kind of. Yeah. I well, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> Wait. The horse or Mustang? Hiyo. <laughs> <laughs> Oh. Good. You're making the same type of jokes that Cactus makes. Woo! Good job. <laughs> Wait, what part of the book are we in? <laughs> we are in, I don't know, entering the Institute. <laughs> I think like we're, we're, we're in rising action, right? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't know if you did this. I tried to make a list of like tension points in rising action no i didn't but i'm excited to hear them there are a lot <laughs> yeah it's a uh, stressful there's, book to read. there's more tension points than there are colors which there are 14 yeah, right? of. <laughs> which there are 14 of, in case you didn't know um i think the natural kind of next tension point we've already talked a lot about julian's death the passage basically yep. i think that's kind of like the immediate next uh tension point I think the next tension point is Titus. Like he sort of introduces this bad guy almost immediately into House Mars. And you get this feeling of like, okay, like I've expanded from the mines to the surface. I've expanded from the surface to a gold, from the gold to the Institute. Now I'm in the Institute. I'm in House Mars. Like what does Darrow have to do? He has to kind of unite House Mars. And Titus is the opposition to that, right? And you find out later that he's a red, which is like a really cool unexpected <laughs> twist. Like oh, I love yes. that. That was so cool. It was such a it was such a cool twist. But it's the first time that Darrow or it's not the first time I even, but it's kind of the next time when Darrow is faced with an impossible situation. You mentioned that like Julian kind of feels like his kind of feels like his first. You might say that like, his, like the death of EO and like his right. decisions around getting whipped. Maybe that's his first impossible situation. Um, but the next one that he's facing is like, what does he do about Titus? Yeah. I think, I think Titus prose is an interesting uh, threat, especially from like the eyes of Darrow, right? Because yeah. you know he's overcome all of these crazy things: his wife dying, becoming a gold, and then all of a sudden, like Titus seems so trivial when you put mm -hmm. it in that perspective. But at the moment, it's the biggest thing in the world, right? He has to unite House Mars, and yeah. Titus is preventing him from doing that. Yeah, and I think there's also this like very natural like, oh, he's like raping people, like yeah, kill him, yeah, like that's execute. That's awful, you know, like, and then all of a sudden it's like it reveals that he's a red. And yep. all of a sudden, the the decision becomes complicated, right? Right. Because you're you're facing with this like golds are bad, reds are good mentality has been turned on its head, and all of a sudden you're like, wait, am I okay with reds raping golds? Like, is is, is that the, acceptable? Yeah. Like, no, of course not, right? But like, oh, your I think your gut immediate reaction is like, oh yeah, execute him. Oh, but he's a red. Maybe you shouldn't. And then you have to like kind of. As a, as a reader, you have to like, you're almost like immediately just slapped in the face with that of like, why am I questioning that? Why does it make a difference what color <laughs> right. he is, right? Yeah. And I think this is another fantastic example from Pierce where it kind of shows what, like if Darrow never evolved mentally, right? He just evolved physically. I feel like Darrow is Titus yeah. if he doesn't start to understand the big picture, mm -hmm. right? That That's that's Titus. Titus is like, let's just cause destruction, which is what Darrow was right at the beginning of his carving. Yeah, and unbridled so, rage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so uh, it, it's just another example of Pierce using other characters to kind of show different paths that Darrow could have taken. Mm -hmm. Do you think he made the right decision? 
And, Titus, and I mean no. specific. What's that? Titus? No. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean specifically like Darrow's decision, his handling of the situation with Titus, oh. and of letting Cassius not just execute, but like brutalize him. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um. I. I think that. I think it's okay to not know. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna say I don't know, and then I'm gonna ramble for a little bit. And yeah, we'll, let's do we'll it. see where it goes. Um, I I think that it's it's a very interesting decision, and it kind of solidifies Cassius yeah. as, as the leader, which kind of comes back and bites Darrow mm-hmm. in 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 the butt later, right? Mm-hmm. I think that it's a very interesting choice, and I think that it was a very hard choice for Darrow because he kind of relates to Titus as like this red brother, right? And so. Oh, I don't. It's, 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 it's <laughs> um, an interesting question. It's a very interesting. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic question, and I think it's a it's a it's a very interesting kind of morality point in the sense of like, okay, was it better to just kill Titus when he was alone in the woods with him when he realizes that he's a red, mm. right? Is, is that the better move? Is that the more humane move? Mm-hmm. Um, or like bringing him back, letting you know Cassius do what he did to Titus, yeah, and, and kind of solidify that. Um, that leadership and leading through terror, right? But as a good guy ish at the time, I don't know. Yeah, um, I think like in my opinion, strategically it was the in terms of playing the game, it strategically it was the right move. It solidified his alliance with Cassius, right? Cassius okay, felt like yep. he was owed, you know, and he kind of gave that to him. It also took the target off of his back a little bit because he kind that, of places really the Julian, the death of Julian, on indirectly. He even. Before that, he kind of set it up, right? He kind of implied that maybe it was the the, the death of Julian was was Titus's fault. In terms of him as a hero, it was not the right moral choice. Yeah, you know? yeah. I I think tactically, exactly. What, I yeah. was about to I was about to summarize it like that. Yeah, tactically, it was the right decision. Morality, maybe not. Yeah, iffy. <laughs> <laughs> iffy. I'm really glad that he didn't like oust himself and say bloody damn right back at Titus. Right. <laughs> right. So, but I, I think that was also kind of a moment of realization later when you you realize that they're always being watched. And did the do you think that the golds actually knew that Titus was a red after that that moment in the woods? Um, I mean, I don't think so. Like, I think. I, I don't I don't think so either. Yeah. Um. Because because Darrow slips up and swears in the red language with bloody damn at one point. And yeah. Severo it's in his fight with Apollo. It's in his fight with Apollo. Severo yeah. picks it up. Which is confusing, by the way, because Apollo is the name of my cat. <laughs> <laughs> Which like a, your cat would have won that fight. Like <laughs> he's so scary. Uh, uh, Severo picks it up, but I don't think any of the proctors really do. Yeah. Uh, which, which well, is, actually, it, we know that they don't because Severo, the reason he picks it up is because he's editing the footage, right? It's right at yeah. the end of the book, like he's editing oh, it out. Yeah. And oh. so he kind of makes this implication of like, hey, I cut out that thing that you said, you know? And Daryl's like, I don't know what that meant, <laughs> you know? Or he's like, he knows what it meant, but he's like, is he talking about what I think he's talking about? Right. So next tension point briefly, I don't think there's a lot to say about it, but probably in my mind would be the fallout with Cassius. Like it feels like yep. Daryl kind of has a couple of victories and all of a sudden the book like takes a turn. Right, yeah. he has this like fall from grace, right, where he has kind of ruled under, under fear and under terror, and all, and all of a sudden he feels like he is the hunted, right, where, um, where like Antonia and her gang like kind of betray him, right, and it becomes apparent like he was only, um, he was only powerful because he was feared, and Cassius is more powerful than him, right, in a one-on-one fight, right. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a that's a good tension point. What what else do you got? What are some of your other tension points? Yeah, after that, the whipping of cactus, I think, is a really important tension point. We've talked a lot about that already. Yeah, um, but it's the moment where you go, oh, like this is what they're doing is different, and, it, and it's again, it's that next time that 
Darrow is faced with an impossible situation, but it's the first time that he's faced with an impossible situation and he comes up with a solution to it that works. Yes, I I 100% agree with that. I think that that's the first time where you are just like, yes, like that is exactly how would have I I would have handled it because I'm awesome. (laughs) (laughs) No, but like it it does feel like that was the right choice. Whereas before, it doesn't feel like Darrow has made many right choices. Yeah, Um, but it's like, oh shit, yep, yep, he did it. Yep, he did it. That was the correct. That's a way to earn undying loyalty right there. Yeah. I guess dying loyalty. (laughs) (laughs) I had in my, um, well, I'll talk about that. So the next tension point is in my mind, Pax's death. Okay. Right. I I think that after the whipping of cactus, Darrow has a series of successes and there are, there are some like, you know, house Apollo's like some oppression to him. Everybody throws their, their spears. (laughs) You know, there's like the tricking of the proctors where they're all like sitting around the campfire and they have their like their sound barrier, whatever it's called. Up. Oh, I love that part. Yeah, and Severo has to go piss. You yeah. Know? <laughs> how and... long does it take to run to? Uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. How how fast can Severo run? Uh, you know. Yeah. And so then they they take down the barrier and they just hear howling. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Severo and the howlers are enough to like take down an entire house, yes. like castle <laughs> by themselves because <laughs> they're that fucking nuts yeah um but like all that to say then the next like kind of tension point is with the jackal who we haven't talked about yet um i think that's a great next place to go yeah um, I, that that kind of culminates in pax's death it's a it's a real failure of darrow's yes yeah and i think jackal probably is one of the better heroes in the story uh- <laughs> <laughs> i want to be like the jackal yes <laughs> no, no 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 but okay all, all joking aside i think the jackal is a really interesting villain yeah. In, in the sense that we don't get a lot of screen time with the Jackal. Yeah. But we fear the Jackal. Right. Right. It's almost like Vader in A New Hope where he's like this ultimate feared person, but you don't get a lot of him. Yeah. And it's kind of like the Jackal where his the, the fear that you see from the Jackal is more in the unknown and like the lore that people yeah. bring to Darrow. So tell us a little bit more about the Jackal. I... I, I... No man, I get excited <laughs> about the jackal. the The jackal is a fantastic villain in my mind. I love that in his introduction. Uh, first of all, Darrow kind of like realizes that who the jackal is. Like that's a really like he called that. That's awesome. Yep. Um, that's really cool to see. And it's one of those times where Pierce does a good job of, even though we are only hearing the story from Darrow's internal monologue, he's hiding the truth from the reader. And that's a really delicate line to walk, right? So that is an impressive yeah, and delicate line Absolutely. to walk. Absolutely. <laughs> because we don't know that the wine is not real wine, yep. right? And everybody, oh, he tells all his yeah. soldiers to get drunk and they're all like, what are you talking about? And the audience here are like, this is a weird scene. Like, I don't yeah. understand what's <laughs> what going on happening? here. What is happening? This is way out of character. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you get, you kind of like look back on it once you realize what has happened and you're like, oh, that, that all makes sense. Um, but like you're not hearing that part of Darrow's kind of thought process of what's going on. I think that the fact that the Jackal is made to be weak and small was a very smart choice. I agree. Because like Titus was not that. Titus was like big and strong and scary, right? Cassius is like not necessarily big and strong and scary, but he's skillful and he's dangerous, right? And the Jackal's not. Like you get the impression very early on, like in a one-on-one fight, like Darrow could just take him. Yeah, he could just straight up kill him. Yeah. And that's not what makes him scary, you know? Yeah. What makes him scary is the fact that he's willing to chop his own hand off to get out of a bad situation. Yeah. And, like, that scene hits you and you're like, this, I think Darrow even says, like, this dude is another beast. Like, (laughs) he is another animal. I am not prepared to handle the lengths that this guy is willing to go to. And the Jackal's alive and well at the end of the series, right? And and so you can assume 
uh, and you would be correct, going forward <laughs> into the series, he is maintained as as a villain. And I think his kind of like growth and change as a villain is really well handled and executed. And just to kind of tie back into our story slash character arc discussion yeah. is that we, we're talking about villains right now, right? Which yep. is the Jackal. Yeah. But if you take a bigger you take a step back and look at the bigger picture darrow is surrounded by villains mm, yeah absolutely right? so the golds are the villains right in his sense but at that moment it's the jackal and his house and everyone that's allied with him yeah so i like i just wanted to take that step back because we one of our most recent kind of not book breakdowns but our most recent like book episodes was talking about like story or character sorry, character arc and how that changes like how the decisions change throughout a character's yeah. story and i just think that that's a really interesting tie-in because at that point you as the reader has also grown with darrow it's like hey these goals are my friends but at the beginning mm. of the book they're my arch enemies yeah and it's just a it's kind of an interesting way to turn it on its head it's like hey the jackal is the enemy where it's yes he is yeah but he's like he's the bigger enemy of all your enemies yeah and uh, we we've talked about quotes. I think that this book has some of the more quotable, like, uh, lines in it. Yeah, and so one it could be very like pithy at times. Almost, <laughs> you know? Yeah, my my favorite quote is the one that you quoted already. Yeah, uh, <laughs> by 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 far. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the second one that I really enjoy, it, it's said by Daryl, and he says, "I'm a sheep wearing wolf's clothing in a pack of wolves." Yeah, which is kind of like turning that on its head and it kind of reminds you where Darrow came from and what his overarching goal is because yeah. in the game it's very straightforward. This is my goal, but when you take a step back it's actually this is the big picture. Oh, and so yeah. <laughs> I, I just wanted to I I'm, no, I'm bring so that glad up. that you brought us here in the analysis. I think this is this is really cool to talk about. So, um, a couple of things on this. So, first, the narrative style really plays into the point that you're making here, right? The narrative style makes you the reader really experience the loneliness that Darrow is experiencing. Oh yeah. You know, because you are only hearing the story from his perspective and you find yourself, I think really wanting to know like, well, what is Mustang thinking? You know, what is Severo thinking? Like what is Cassius, the Jackal? What is Ares thinking? Right? Like (laughs) whoever (laughs) that is, I don't even know who Ares is, (laughs) you know? Um, Darrow thinks he does. Darrow thinks he does, right? <laughs> um, and he may or may not be correct. Like that, another one that's like still an open like, um, but he thinks it's Dancer, right? And like, what what is Dancer thinking? What are his motives? What what is Fitchner thinking? And like, what are his? You know, like, there's all these things that you're like, if you if I could just step like, why isn't this book telling me what they're thinking? Like, <laughs> you know, and it, it it isolates you. Yeah, it as really the does. reader, you're totally isolated to only Darrow's perspective. And that, like you said, that sheep and wolf's clothing, I think, really sinks in because of that. You're isolated just as Darrow is isolated. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, the second thing is that you're totally right. When you take a step back, all all of the bad guys in the book are golds, with the exception of Titus, I think. Uh, like Titus, because Titus is a red who's been half turned gold. into... He's half gold. He's a right? rust. He's, he's a... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He's a rolled. And he... Um, he every, everybody else is kind of embodying a trait of gold that makes gold the bad guy right um but even like you you mentioned before is gold the bad guy really like the society is the ultimate bad guy right he darrow is ultimately fighting a fight against like the system you know and he's not fighting a fight against like the jackal although immediately it looks like he's fighting a fight against the jackal but the jackal is a product of the system right and he's embodying a specific he's embodying ruthlessness or something like that like some right. very specific trait of the of the system cassius is the same way right cassius 
is em- embodying like pride, like ultimate pride and like looking down on everybody else. The, um, the governor, uh, governor Augustus, right. Is, is, a, is another one who is like, he can be seen as the bad guy. He's the guy that kills EO essentially. Um, he at least kind of orders it and facilitates it. Um, but he's only a part of the problem. And so I think you're exactly right to take that perspective of like, let's step back and recognize like, yes, there are bad guys, but why are they bad guys? And what is kind of the bigger picture that they're trying to describe? And just like you said, like each kind of student slash leader of the different houses embodies a a trait of the gold culture, mm-hmm. which I think probably leads us to our next tension slash climax point, which is the attack of Mount Olympus, which is yeah. kind of both symbolically and physically the taking on of the society. Yeah. And where where Darrow storms the gods, right, of, of the game, right? Oh, my God. Which is just a, a fantastic scene when you, when you realize that not only is he, like, breaking the rules of the game and like kind of taking on how it's moderated and all of this and just how that like embodies his overarching goal of taking on the the gold society right he storms mount olympus he gets his fellow golds to storm mount olympus with him right right? so it, it that to me is the climax of the book. I, oh, I, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't know if that's debatable. It's amazing. Yes. Like, it's no such one's a, ever done it before. No one's ever done it before. It, you don't even know what the climax is going to be until it's happening, <laughs> right? And it happens quick. It happens fast. And you're like, holy shit! Like, he's gonna take. He's gonna take Olympus. He's just gonna, like that's the fight he's gonna fight. He's gonna fight the fucking Proctors. Yeah. Like, and I would, I would love to just be like, you know just a, like a bug on the wall when <laughs> like, so he takes like kind of the core group, like Severo and the Howlers and everyone that's with him. And if you remember, he gets to Olympus and he like just starts going in yeah. and he, and then he sends like Pebble and like a couple other people back, somebody, I forget who he sends them back and he says, go get the army. Right. Yeah. And I would love to just be like a, like a fly on the wall when like Pebble comes back and, and she's like, you know, Reaper's taking Olympus. And they're all like, <laughs> what the fuck? Let's go. <laughs> like they're partying right at the time. Like they're right. drinking, like yeah. and they're drinking and they just had this big victory and they're just like fucking Reaper, man. This yeah. dude is legit. Like this dude is insane. He wants to take Olympus. Let's do it. You know? And they just hop on and like his whole army, like, I don't know. That, that scene is, I think it's so incredible I, how, like you said, it totally embodies his whole struggle. But you, I think you just expected that he was going to take down the jackal. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I was about to bring that up where yeah. like the entire like scene in the academy is that the climax is going to be his fight with the jackal. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It's not. It's so much bigger than that. Yeah. Both both physically and metaphorically. Right. Because right. He, he kind of like reverts back to realizing that the his overarching game, quote, game, mm-hmm. is not to win the Academy's game. It's to take down the society. And that's him starting to do that. Yeah. So I... I oh. love, like, the slight pettiness, too, of Darrow, <laughs> where he... You know those moments where he's, like, like when he has his howlers buried in horses' guts and he's trying to take House Minerva and he's fighting packs. <laughs> and he's like, Ugh. I don't have to fight him at this point i've already won but like i want to beat him yep and i think he's a little bit that way with like his fight with apollo yep and his fights with jupiter where he's like he's like i'm he doesn't need to take olympus like he has done well enough to achieve the goal that like the sons of aries need him to, you know he's gonna he's gonna be a preter or something right like, something yep. important a legate something and he's like no fuck it like i'm i'm <laughs> <laughs> i'm going for it i'm gonna i'm going for it i'm gonna take everybody down 
So we've talked about the climax of the book, which is an awesome climax. Yeah. Uh, let, let's briefly like touch on like we we've hit the top of the pyramid. Let's come back down. The yeah. falling action and yeah. the the resolution of the book. What what do we what do we see in the resolution of the book? Yeah, I think like once you kind of realize where the book is going in the climax, the falling action is maybe understandable or even predictable. You know, you you realize like okay. Darrow's essentially won the game. He's going to get some sort of like awesome assignment coming out yep. of this. It ends up being the governor, and you're like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like, yeah, that's you know, a, like he's a fun interpersonal conflict. Right, right. <laughs> he's the dude he hates most in the world because he killed his wife. So uh, that's tough. But I at think, least he has a new girlfriend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> at least he has a new girlfriend. Um, I think what's maybe more interesting is like what is not resolved, right? Mm -hmm. What is not resolved in the book? There are a lot of open questions at the end of the book. We've already talked about like. Where the hell are the sons of Ares? Like, yeah, they yeah. were—they seemed so important, right? And then they just go away. You kind of forget about them. <laughs> yeah, you kind right? of do. <laughs> it, it contributes to that isolation. I think that Darrow yeah. is kind of feeling. Yeah, that's true. So that's like an open question. Like, where are the sons of Ares? Like, what are they doing? What are the goals and motivations of like some of these golds that he's met along the way? Like, Severo makes again that kind of like implication of like he knows that he said bloody damn. Like, does he understand what that means? Like, yeah. The implications of that. Like, what is he going to do with that information, you know, like going forward? And like, what does Sebo even really want? Like, he's a weird gold. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, he is a weird gold. I, I think kind of like that can be expanded to any of the golds because you kind of understand the motivation and the wants and the needs of the golds inside the game. Yeah. But it's a game. Yeah. Right. So when you take a step back after you've graduated from that, what, where is, where, where's everybody going to go? For sure. Like what? Mustang. What, what Cassius. Is Must what are they going to do? Right. Yeah. Like Darrow's made friends and enemies in mm -hmm. this game. And how is that going to affect real life? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I think another one that isn't resolved is EO mentions that she has two gifts for Darrow in the garden and she gives him one of them and she kind of withholds the other one she said she'll give it to him at a later date and and then she's executed and he mentions like later in the book like two-thirds of the way through the book or something like that he kind of like remembers that like i wonder what eo's other gift is right and that's something that's i think eo is such an like you like you said she's the i she's the ideal she's the like kind of the beacon that is um that is like what darrow is kind of like she's like his waystone or something right like what what he's like measuring himself so the fact that there's this kind of like unresolved question around eo is i think really confusing at the end of the book because she seems so like certain and definite you know and so the fact that there's this like what is that other gift i think is just kind of like a lingering question that that kind of carries into the rest of the series also what does she tell her sister yeah what does she tell her sister <laughs> mm, that's interesting yeah why did she pick her sister over darrow right yeah you know? Lastly, I think we have mentioned a little bit. Uh, I don't know if you know. Do you know how many colors there are in the book? Uh, it's at least six. It's at least six. Yeah. I think somewhere around 14. I would say 14 plus or minus zero. <laughs> <laughs> and so we have met like we've met reds. We've very briefly met obsidians because they like captured Darrow at that one. But we really don't know that much about obsidian. We met a ton of golds. We've met a violet. We have met a copper. Pinks. Pinks. We've met pinks. But like, you know, there's a lot of, there's blues, greens, oranges still to cover. Uh, browns, we've met like seen in the background a little bit, but we really don't understand their role. Silvers, we know exist, but don't understand. Like there's a lot of colors. Um, we've heard mention of whites, but haven't, don't know a lot about them yet. Grays? So grays. Yeah, we've met grays. Yeah, absolutely. Lame. Lame. <laughs> They're just like reds, but they have guns. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is that there is a lot still of like 
in this world building of this color hierarchy, there's a lot still to kind of explore, right? I think that the later books do a good job of starting to like build into that. That's kind of that expansion of like, okay, Darrow has gone from the mines to the surface to the gold society. We're starting in the later books to get outside of just Mars and outside of just kind of like these handful of colors that we've already met. Yeah, and I, I, I think one of the other thing the, the other points to that is that not all reds are miners. Right. Mm-hmm. So so what there are, are high reds? <laughs> there, there are high reds. There are different types of pinks. There are different types of obsidians. Yeah. And how, how does that play into and how does that affect like social status inside of a like, right? They're still on the same level. But how does that affect social status inside of the color itself? Yeah. And I, I think that that is very much expanded on and very interesting in the later books. Yeah, I think we would both recommend them, right? They're, yeah, yeah, they're, yeah. They're absolutely worth reading. They're interesting. They will feel different because it's not just, it's not an institute type of book anymore. It doesn't feel like just Hunger Games anymore. Um, but I right. think the integrity of Darrow and of the like supporting cast of characters is maintained and he still becomes, he's still a very interesting hero who's, who's developing over the course of the series. So um, it's definitely worth reading. It, it will feel slightly different, um, but still, still a series that's like absolutely worth your time. Yeah, I, I think that I would have the same recommendation that I did with Mistborn. Yeah, where the the first three books, the original trilogy, the OG trilogy, yeah, uh, is really really good. And I highly recommend it. And if you really like it, go ahead and read the second one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right now, two of the two of the books in the follow up trilogy are released and like I have enjoyed them, but I've enjoyed them because I really like red rising. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So we have talked about our favorite character, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like we've talked about that in other episodes outside of this one, which is several. Yeah. Uh, He's my most common answer to icebreaker questions. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. (laughs) Several. If you could give a monopoly piece, Right, symmetrical firepower. <laughs> what would it be? Several, several. Uh, Count it. Um, but yeah. So what? What about some other characters? What's your second favorite character in the book, and My why? Second favorite character. I really like Cactus. I think I called him Cactus earlier in the episode. He is Cactus from here on out. He's, he's always <laughs> Cactus. Yeah, Tactus. I, I really like Tactus. I think he is. Like, why do I like Tactus? I, I like Tactus because he he's this character that is like he he falls into the category of evil gold. I think that like yeah. um there Pierce almost makes a natural distribution between like okay yes golds are bad reds are good but also there's like good golds and bad golds right <laughs> and, and that like feels very like a very easy split to make and Tactus starts to like blur that line a little bit. It becomes obvious like first of all he's like he's the he's the reason that the whipping happens. Yep. Right? So he is actually the reason that Darrow's army is like unified. Right. It's for an awful reason. Like it's not what he meant to. He was like pushing the boundaries and everything. But there's a real change in his like character arc from that point forward, right? Where he is still incredibly intelligent and vicious and this amazing fighter and he's he's one of the strongest people in uh Darrow's army. But now he has like respect and he has like loyalty, almost like a like a younger brother, right? Where he feels like Darrow has done this thing for him that no one has ever done. And it, it, it forces a change in him. So, like, when he questions Darrow on things later, he is, like, questioning. And Darrow even recognizes that he is questioning, but out of respect. It's like he wants to know, but he's not going to, like, force the issue like he would have previously, right? We're seeing some change in Tactus. Yeah, and I think that also goes back to kind of the 
the effectiveness of Darrow's leadership style, yeah. where it's it it's walking this fine line of allowing Tactus to question him, and yet have certain obedience no matter what his decision is. Yeah, <laughs> which, which is a really interest. It's a thin line, right? Really? To yeah. to have people able to question your decisions, but when you say your decision, that's the decision. Yeah, for um, sure. And so I I think that that. Yeah. yeah, Cactus is awesome. <laughs> He's always going to be Cactus. Um, and, and just to, again, just to like plug the follow-up books, I think that he has he has a really great arc uh, through the kind of the follow-up. He, he's a character that recurs and, and his kind of like change, both negative and positive in morality and in power and like all the things that we talked about in the character arc story makes him a really interesting and great character. So, nice. Cool. Yeah. What about you? Several. Several again. <laughs> <laughs> he takes my second spot. No, yeah. I, I, I really like how the jackal is written. Mm. Um, I, I like he's he's not my like favorite character because like I idealize the jackal, right? Like right. that'd be kind of weird. Um, but I, I do think that he's concerned. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should talk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but I, I do think that he's written very well. He's a, he's a great villain, yeah. especially because of kind of like all the reasons that we've talked about before, right? He, he's unassuming. He's small. He's vicious. Yeah. He's not, he's not strong because he's physically strong. Yeah. Type type stuff. And th- those are the type of villains that I really enjoy. Yeah. Uh, that that kind of cunning and cruel. Right. And like if if you're one on one with him in a room, you are going to beat his ass, right? Like mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that's not why people follow. Well, he got through the passing, but <laughs> Okay, that's fair. Right. Yeah. Um but, but it was probably rigged. <laughs> Everything else in his life was rigged. Yeah, so. right. He fought a pink. Uh, <laughs> he fought a pink, yeah. But I, I I really enjoy the way that the jackal's written, yeah. Especially in this book and also throughout the other books. So yeah, he's sure. probably my second favorite character in the sense of the way he's written, not like because I like him as a character. Yeah, but you also you do have a bit of soft spots for the villains. I do. Yeah. I like villains. Who's your favorite but, character of all time? Uh, <laughs> a, a wonderful hero that brought balance to the force, Anakin Skywalker. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So let's uh, let's let's wrap this up with the with an interesting topic that or a question that we we kind of both came up with, and yeah. I, I think it's something that I is it's fun to talk about. Yeah, I think um, we've kind of danced around this. We, episode we've kind of a danced bit. around it. Let's 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 just talk about it. Do you think that this book seems like a realistic setting? Oh, I love. I'm so excited for this question. Okay, let's go. Um, yes, I, I do. I need I, some more of this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Boop. Or the whiskey. Yes, inherently, yes, I do. I think, uh, and I think just inherent with this question, we're going to get a little bit into like social commentary, right? Yeah. But like, does our society have goals already? Yeah. Like in some sense, yeah, right? Like you, you have to be to be a millionaire. You have to be born into a million dollars. Like you know, like you have to you have to be born into wealth a, a lot of times. In our, you can see that in politicians. You can see that in tech giants. You can see, you know, like there's kind of this structure for where for whatever reason where you know i would say like like you and i we're the mid colors right we're right we're the oranges and the greens the engineers yeah. we are right? very fortunate yeah we're very fortunate yeah. where we can have kind of a life that is acceptable a life that is comfortable and and honestly really good yeah right? and like, honestly good like but there are 
you know, there there are reds in our society. There are low reds in our like society. Sadly, yes. And they're they're not called that, right? And they don't. And I think the like safety net that we like as as a society have is that they don't. We're like, oh, we don't have to be that, right? It's right. not like in where it's like you are a low red. You have to be that, you know. Right. Where it's like so. This tight-cast. is your purpose. Yeah, exactly. We don't frame it that way. We don't frame it that way, but it's like. But can someone who is an equivalent to a red in our society rise to be a gold? The answer is probably most cases no, you know? Which is really sad. It's really sad, yeah. And so it's almost like this uh, this typecast that they have is it's saying out loud the quiet part. Yeah. You oh, know? that's a great way to put it. Yep. It's 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 putting a name to like maybe some things that already kind of exist. And I could definitely see how I think I think humans who are in power hold on to power and they create systems to hold on to power yes and i could definitely see how it like this is playing out a typecast system you know a caste society to its extreme i think in you know if 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 human human if human society exists (laughs) 400 years from now or 800 years or whatever where we are conquering our own solar system I, i don't know i feel like we could get there I think that was a fantastic answer. I I, yeah. I really and gold star for Dalton. Yeah, gold star for Dalton. <laughs> <laughs> Suck it, Nick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I I have in my notes to an answer to this question is regret regrettably yes. Yeah. Um. And and I think it's not as explicit as it is in the books. Right. But it's a, a very much a metaphorical mm-hmm. comparison. Yeah. And it, it's not fair. Right. <laughs> it's not happy. Um, but I, I think that this is one of the things that I love about fiction is that it's able to take real life challenges that we have and put it into a, a story that we can know and read and understand. Yeah. And so, sadly, yes. Right. I, I, I do think that it is. And I think that in 400 years when we are, you know, making our way to Mars and Jupiter and all of these right. other things, or uh, things, planets. Um, <laughs> yeah, they have names, planets and moons. <laughs> yeah, I know most of them. Uh, <laughs> A solid, I don't know, six. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, over half. Uh, <laughs> um, that does the scope of humanity as we start to grow and expand in the worlds that we know, mm-hmm. does it get easier to typecast people? Yeah, for sure. Especially like when you, they they need efficiency, right? That that's what the genetic modification is trying to achieve, right? It's saying yeah. we need people who are really blues, who are really good at integrating with technology. Greens are the same, right? We need yellows who are just like who are masters of understanding the human body and healing, right? Do we really need pinks? Probably not. That's a little fucked up, but yeah. you know, probably but, not. Yeah, but they have like violets dedicated to like art and culture like that inherently that sounds like a really good thing then you realize they go to a school where they are like pumped full of psychedelics and it's like oh yeah all of a sudden like this thing that sounded good you can see the implications of it and it's like oh i don't like that that's messed up yeah. <laughs> i don't like that that's i don't good. like that at all um so how does like human society at its ex- you know at its extreme several hundred years in the future achieve efficiency when biomodifications sound like reasonable at that at that technology level like it feels like i would want to have a biomodification to make me better at and more efficient at my job how do we do that without uh, again without typecasting people without putting about without losing freedom you know something that feels really important and feels like a core part of human nature um how do we do that without oppression and i I don't know i think the book puts into perspective that yeah this could definitely be attainable and achievable if that was gone about in the wrong way yeah (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I I think that this is probably 
one of, if not the heaviest topic discussions we've had. Yeah, right. For sure. I think it's really interesting, and I I do want to talk about it. Right, mm-hmm. like I I want to talk about it on our Discord. Yeah. Or 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 other places. Let's talk about this, and I'm interested to see what people think. Like, is this a realistic setting? Yeah. Do you, Do you think that that Red Rising is an amplification of what we currently see today in our society? Yeah. Or do you think that when we got to that point that it would be fixed somehow? Like, we yeah. wouldn't get to that extreme. I would, do, I would do be we, interested to hear that. Yeah. Do we create technology so that everybody is a gold, right? Like, yeah. Like, yeah. Do, do we have it so that everybody can reap the benefits of society? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it's going to be an interesting topic. I, I'm ex- I'm interested to see what people have to say. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's let's talk about it. Uh, the best place to do that is on our Discord. So you can find our Discord. It's linked in the show notes. It's also on our website, which is fantasyandsomeflights.com, yep. which is where you can find the show notes, which is going to link to uh, Lauren's YouTube channel, who yep. did the, the song um, at the beginning, as well as uh, Stonemeyer Games, who's putting out Red Rising and everything. Yep. The, uh, the second best place to connect with us is going to be Instagram. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything else from your end? That's it for me. It was awesome talking with you. I, I love it. this book. I love I'm it. really excited to read through the rest of the series. Right into the natural, <laughs> just go through the rest of it. Yep, which I said I was going to do with Mistborn. So. <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot of reading to do. Yep, but uh, it was great talking with you. Cheers, uh, buddy. Cheers.